You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. turn our attention to God's word, I just want to echo what we just heard about the bridge course, praising God ultimately for what he has done. But I just want to express my thanksgiving. Uh, First of all, I want to thank Kyle for all the hard work he has done to get this off the ground and to make it successful. Brother, I'm very appreciative of you. This is something we've been talking about doing for years. And then once the, the church plant to San Antonio kind of came about, we realized that that was something God had brought in to our, our, our kind of midst, and this is what we were to do. We kind of put that on, on hold, and then just over the last year, we feel like this is something we were to, we were to do, and Kyle has just run with it. So I want to thank him. And I, want to, I really do just want to thank you as a congregation for inviting people, for being willing to serve. We really just have great faith that the Lord is going to use this course to just allow people to, to hear the message of the gospel in a way that they may not, even on a Sunday morning, uh, they may not come in um, on a Sunday morning because, you know, cultures change where people were far more willing to come to church on Sundays, less people are willing to do that. And, and so this will just be a, a wonderful environment for us to continue as a church after we have this course to continue to do it, um, it maybe twice a year to just allow us as a congregation to bring family, friends and neighbors hear the gospel. So I just want to thank you for all that you've done to make this possible. And I have so much excitement and faith about what God's going to do. Well, if you would, if you haven't already, make your way to the letter of Galatians. As you can see on the screen behind me today, we begin a new sermon series entitled Freedom in Christ, the glorious gospel of Galatians. And here, here's the plan. Our plan is to make our way through this entire letter. And by doing so, we want to explore the depths of God's grace shown to us through Jesus Christ. This morning, this being a letter, we want to begin with the greeting, the introduction of the letter. So we're going to turn our attention to the first five verses this morning. Galatians chapter one, verses one through five. So I want to invite you to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor to man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with him, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Has there ever been a time in your life when you began to question something you once believed in strongly? I would guess if we really took some time, we've probably done that. 
something that we once believed in very strongly. We hit a season of life for whatever reason. We, we began to question something we once believed in and were convinced of. And we began to wonder, is this true? Well, if you've ever experienced that, can I ask you a follow-up question? Did you end up changing your belief or did you simply just question? Because there's times where we question what we believe and there's times where we realize, you know, this thing I was believing, I don't know that I believe anymore and I'm going to not keep believing it and we change our belief. Or have you ever experienced this? Have you ever changed your belief about something only to change it again later on? Maybe you went through a season of life where you questioned something you grew up believing, something you were taught, you stopped believing it. And then years later, you came back to realizing, you know what, that, that, that was true. I, I, I should hold on to that belief. Well, here's the reason I wanted to ask you those questions as we begin the, this letter to Galatians this morning. Changing our mind about what we believe can sometimes be a sign of real growth in our faith. If you believe the wrong thing, if you grew up being taught something that wasn't true, it, it, it may be painful to stop believing that. It may be hard, but it, it's not necessarily a bad thing to change what you believe if what you're believing is now true. And so sometimes changing what we believe may be a sign of real growth and, and maturity. However, there are times when changing our beliefs may actually be a sign of either moral, spiritual, or doctrinal decline. So sometimes we're changing our beliefs because we're growing up and we're maturing. And sometimes we change our beliefs because we're declining. Morally, spiritually, or doctrinally. There are times when changing what you believe Though it may be really hard in the end, it's liberating. There are times when changing your beliefs may feel liberating. But in reality, you're being enslaved to a lie. Church, the issue at the center of the letter of Galatians had to do with a major change in doctrinal beliefs that the churches in Galatia had made. See, they had made a major change. They believed something strongly. And pretty quickly, they began to question what they believed. You see, the churches within the region of Galatia were questioning what they had been taught about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what they needed to know was that by making this change, not only was it spiritually detrimental, it was damaging. That's what's happening in this letter. Here's, here's the backstory. At some point, before receiving this letter to the churches of Galatia, the Apostle Paul had made his way to towns within this region called Galatia, and he had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And were informed by the book of Acts that many of the people in this region of Galatia, in these towns, after hearing the message of the gospel, they responded and they apparently placed their faith in Christ. And what we discover in the letter of Galatians 
is that sometime after Paul had left, we don't know the exact timeline, it wasn't a long time, but sometime after Paul had left to preach the gospel, other teachers came in. And they began to question the message Paul had taught them by undermining the authenticity of him as a messenger. If they could undermine him, they could undermine what he had taught them. Paul wrote to these churches in Galatia for the sole purpose of helping them experience true liberty in Christ. He wanted them to experience liberty. Liberty that comes through Jesus Christ. But this liberty would come only by renouncing their current belief system and returning to what he had proclaimed to them. What he had told them made them free. And now they're leaving that and they are finding themselves back in bondage thinking they are free. And Christ or Paul now wrote this letter to let them know, no, it's in Jesus and the gospel I've proclaimed to you that brings true liberty. So that's why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. But I want you to know, church, this, this letter was written by God and preserved by God, not only for that congregation then, but this letter is in our Bible today so that we can experience freedom in and so that we too can be protected from any false gospel that enslaves instead of liberates. This morning we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1 through 5 in two sections. Here's our outline for this morning. The gospel messenger verses 1 through 2. And the gospel message verses 3 through 5. Let's begin by looking at the gospel messenger verses 1 through 2. And I want to read those two verses again. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with him to the churches of Galatia. As you notice, this letter begins with a standard greeting. This, this, this greeting wasn't unique to Paul. This is the greeting found in most Greco-Roman letters of the day where the person writing the letter would state who they are, Paul. And then after stating who he is, who it is that's writing, he stated his title or his role, Paul, an apostle. Now that word apostle in the Greek can either just mean messenger at, at the least, or it can mean more than that. It's not less than a messenger. Paul is a messenger, but he's more than a messenger. In this case, when Paul calls himself an apostle, he's speaking of his authoritative role. He was assigned an authoritative role to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and to represent him as an ambassador of Jesus. And there's nothing unusual about this opening so far. Actually, out of 13 of Paul's letter, he begins eight of them with this same introduction. Paul an apostle. What is striking and unusual about the beginning of Galatians is what comes next. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. In other words, 
He was saying he didn't choose to be an apostle. No human authorized him to be an apostle. It wasn't the 12 original apostles that called him to be an apostle. It wasn't a group of Christians who sanctioned him. No one, humanly speaking, had a role in making the apostle Paul an apostle, even himself. He didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'm going to be an apostle. No one had a role, humanly speaking, in him being an apostle. Why then does he make this point that he doesn't in any other letter? Like I said, eight of his 13 letters, he says, Paul, an apostle, but nowhere else outside of the letter of Galatians does he make it clear, not from men, nor through man. Why, why does he do that? Why does he want us to know that his apostleship was not the result of human authorization or delegation? Why, why, why state it here and why state it now? Well, the answer will become even more clear as we make our way through the first two chapters of this letter. But this line from Paul hints at a problem taking place in Galatia. Let me just throw this out here. We often, when we come to letters in the New Testament, we treat the introductory material kind of quickly, like a sidewalk that's just getting us to the house. Letters in the New Testament are not sidewalks. They're the door. And we're going to learn a lot about the letter of Galatians in these five verses that it's going to tell us a great deal. And one of the things we're already seeing in what Paul just said, not from men, nor through man. We have just understood a major or been introduced to a major theme throughout this letter. In order to undermine the message Paul was proclaiming, his opponents had to first undermine Paul and his role. You see, if you call him into question, then you can call the message he proclaimed into question. That was their ultimate aim. And, and, and isn't that true today? Isn't that what everyone does? If you want to shut down the message, you, you discredit the messenger. Well, that's what they're doing. They wanted, to, they wanted to stop the message of the gospel being proclaimed, the message that, that Paul was proclaiming. So they said, this guy's not legit. He, he's not official. He's not doing saying things the way he ought to say. Now, the why and the how of these false teachers calling Paul's authority into question, they'll be addressed more fully in the first two chapters. So I'm not going to try to explain what is it that they're concerned with Paul preaching. Why are they questioning his apostleship? We'll spend a lot more time there in the weeks ahead. Let me just say this for now. Paul had to defend his apostolic authority so that he could defend the apostolic message he had been. See, Paul's never defending that he's an apostle because he's proud. Like, do, do you not know that I'm an apostle? He could care less what you thought of him. But all of a sudden, when you start to undermine him so that you can get at the gospel, Paul is always eager to defend himself. When the gospel's not at stake, Paul could care less if you even know his name. He's not, he's not, he doesn't have an ego. He didn't take this title, apostle, and wear it boldly on his chest. No, he realizes if these guys undermine me, then everything I taught in Galatia is going to fail. And I'm going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, this raises the question, 
if Paul's role as an apostle wasn't assigned by any human being, then how did he end up being an apostle after all? Well, we're told here in the second part of verse 1 is by divine calling. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Notice how Jesus is not only mentioned with God the Father, implying that Jesus and God are equal. That Jesus wasn't simply a man, that he is equal with God. Notice that. But most importantly, notice this. Jesus is mentioned before God the Father, which is not normal. Even a little bit later in the verse, the Father is mentioned before Jesus. Why is that? Why this reverse and mentioning Jesus first? Because he was the one, Jesus Christ was the one who appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and commissioned him to be an apostle. So if you were to ask the apostle Paul, by what authority do you proclaim the message you do? Why do you call yourself an apostle? Especially if you're going to stand up and say, no man made me an apostle. Then why, why do you think you can open your mouth? And Paul would say, because the Lord Jesus Christ called me to be an apostle. We can take a brief detour for just a moment. I don't want to assume everyone knows this story. But in Acts chapter 9, we're told about this radical event that takes place. The story of this man who at this time in Acts chapter 9 hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He thought what was being taught about Jesus was false. He, he loved the God of the, of the Old Testament scriptures. He believed he was a faithful, religious, devout Jew. And that this teaching of Jesus was, was blasphemy. And blasphemy according to the law deserved death. So Paul went around silencing these men and women. Preaching blasphemy. Teaching blasphemy. By killing them. Until one day. Something happened. Look at Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, now notice this contrast. The Apostle Paul is a man who is under the authority of other men. He was commissioned to be, by men, a persecutor of the church. He had to go get permission. He said, can I have letters so that when I go into these synagogues and I find people who believe in the way, I can drag them back. You can, you can find out if they really hold to Jesus and maybe we can end it. But something happened on his way there. Now, as he went on his way, he, appeared, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Think about what he just said. He, he knows it's the Lord. 
persecuting me? Who could that be? How could it be persecuting you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Though, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, if we had more time, we could walk through more of his story. But from that point forward, this event, this encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus changed the trajectory of Paul's life. He went from being one of the chief persecutors of Christians to now the chief missionary and proclaimer of Jesus Christ. Now go back to verse 1. And look at this last thing that Paul says. Not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. By stating how Jesus had been raised from the dead by God the Father, we are reminded that the risen Lord is the reigning Lord because he's alive. We often forget that if Jesus rose from the dead, he is not just the risen Lord, he is the reigning Lord. He is still active, he is still at work. Therefore, he can commission men like the Apostle Paul. If he rose, then he can show up on a road and he can call men who once persecuted him to now belong to him and to do his work. Now, Paul transitions in verse 2 by stating how he was not alone when writing this letter. Nothing unusual there. Often Paul, when he writes, says from Paul or Timothy or, or Silas or whoever it is that's with him. So he's doing that. He's stating who's with him here. And he, also, and he actually is doing more than that. He's not just saying, these are the men that are with me without naming their names. It might have been a larger group. That's why he didn't name all the people. But I think he's not just saying, here's who's with me. But those who I'm with, they believe the same thing. If, you, if you're tempted, Church of Galatia, to think, is this Paul guy rogue? Were there other men who, who stand, men and women who stand shoulder to shoulder with me? No, I'm not rogue. This isn't just a message I'm preaching. And then lastly, Paul states who he was writing to. The churches in the region of Galatia. When you came in today, you received a handout telling you a little bit about this letter in the background. So I'm not going to spend much time there. I, I appreciate Kyle putting that together so you could just have an introductory. I would encourage you to keep that in your Bible for these next few weeks. It gives you a little bit of information. When, does this, when was this letter most likely written? When we hear Galatia, it's not a city. It's actually a region. Well, what, what cities in the book of Acts are, are we talking about when we hear Galatia? So hopefully that will help you kind of know. Now, Let's transition. We talked about the gospel messenger. Now let's talk about the gospel message. Verses 3 through 5. And I want to read verse 3 now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul often greeted each church he was writing to with this blessing of grace and peace. You're probably familiar with that. If you've read any of Paul's letters, you, you know that he often says grace and peace to you. But what we have to be careful with is that we not just think these are pleasantries. Like these are just little things. This, this is Paul's little phrase. Or we may say, God bless you. Like this is just Paul's nice pleasantry when he walks in the door. Grace and peace. There's content. A lot is being communicated by those two words. Grace and peace. You see, grace and peace are the fruit of the gospel. Once people put their faith in Jesus, they receive grace for their sins, and they receive peace with God, peace within, and they are, are given a peace that allows them to be at peace with others. And notice where this grace and peace come from. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus you see, this, this grace and this peace are a gift. This grace and this peace aren't just something that we muster up in ourselves. We don't just find peace within. We don't just become, you know, graceful people. No, this is a grace that is given to us. This is a peace that's given to us, and it is a gift. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we can Earn. Look, look at what Paul says next in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. You see, in verse 4, we're informed that grace and peace were purchased for us by Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death. So why? Why can we experience grace with God and peace with God? Why can we be people who have grace in our posture towards others and peace in our posture towards others? Because it's a gift that costs something and we didn't have to pay for it. Jesus did. Look, look what it says Jesus did. He gave himself for our Don't move past that line too quickly. That is packed with theology. This language of him giving himself for our sins, this is the language of atonement. Everything about this is atoning language. Our sins can be forgiven because they were atoned for by Jesus Christ who died in our place. And listen, he did it willingly and he did it sacrificially. That's what's also in this language. It's not just he was made to do this. Like God the Father said, son, you're going to go die for these people. Dad, do I have to? No, he, he came. Remember what Jesus said in John 10? No one can take my life away from me. I lay it down willingly and I have the ability to take it up again. He's laying down his life willingly and sacrificially. You see, friends... At the heart of the message of the gospel is the glorious proclamation that all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God can be forgiven. All who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God can be forgiven because their sin has been atoned for 
through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Apart from the cross, there would be no gospel message. We must not ever, ever take the gospel, the cross, away from being central to the message of the gospel. The cross is central to the message of the gospel. Apart from the cross, there would be no gospel. And if there there was no gospel, we would be without hope. But that's not all that we're told Christ did. Not only did Christ give himself for our sins. Listen to this. He rescued us from the world we're enslaved to. He rescued us from the world we're enslaved to. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now here again, we encounter another theme in this letter already in the introduction. Without getting into the body of the letter, we're already being made aware of another major theme. You see, the false teaching that was spreading throughout Galatia that Paul was trying to put an end to, it had to do with a failure to take into account that at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus, a new age had begun. When Jesus died and rose again, that was a decisive marker moment in history, and all the world could be divided between that moment, what took place before and what took place after. A new age had begun. We're going we're gonna to look at this far more throughout this letter of Galatians because failure to understand that the cross and the resurrection brought about this new age was one of the ways that this false teaching was, was, was being carried out. Things they were saying about the law, things they were saying about circumcision, all those stuff. It wasn't just they were misunderstanding the Old Testament, they weren't understanding the age they were living in because Jesus Christ had come into the world. Now, you may be thinking, okay, what what does this mean that he delivered us from the present evil age? Well, let me illustrate what this means. Imagine living your entire life under the oppressive regime of North Korea. That's where you've grown up. You've known nothing else. It's the only world you've known. And you don't know any other way of life. You have no idea that your leader has been suppressing all the information about the rest of the world. You have no idea that he's even a bad leader because you don't know there's such a thing as a good leader. This is all you've ever known. Then imagine one night. Someone comes to your house and rescues you out of that country. Now, we're not going to get lost in the details. How did they do that? How did they pull that off? But imagine all of a sudden you go from living your entire life in the dark, unaware of the rest of the world, not knowing the the kind of oppressive regime you were in, and all of a sudden you get rescued. Can you imagine how eye-opening that experience would be once you've left that oppressive atmosphere and have tasted freedom for the first time? You had no idea that you were oppressed until you stand on this side of freedom and you go, oh my, oh my. I had no idea. I had no idea what was going on. This is what it's like to be rescued from this present evil age. 
We're going to talk about this far more in this letter. As we'll discover throughout this letter, those who belong to Christ have been rescued out of this oppressive world that keeps people enslaved to sin, to guilt, and to shame. That's what this world does. It's oppressive. It's oppressive. It oppresses people by keeping them in bondage to sin, to guilt, and to shame. And to top it all off, none of them think they're enslaved. Walking around with their chest out thinking, I'm a free man. Unaware of the bondage. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we are free. This is a major theme in this letter. Actually, look how the letter ends. It begins by stating this. Well, we hear the same theme in chapter 6, verse 14. It's said differently, but it's making the same point. Chapter 6, verse 14 of this letter. But far be it from me to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul doesn't just say when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for my sins alone. That's that's true. That's glorious. But when he died on the cross... The oppressive world I belong to, I was rescued from. And now I belong to a new world order. We're going to discover what that means more in the days ahead. But Paul rounds out his thoughts here by letting us know that all this was according to the will of our God and Father. Why did Jesus Die on the cross. Why did he deliver us from the present evil age? According to the will of God, our fathers. You see, even though Jesus accomplished our freedom by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he did so according to the will of God the Father. And this is why the Lord receives all the glory for our salvation. Look how then Paul ends this introduction. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does God get all the glory for our salvation? Jesus accomplished it and the Father willed it. Therefore, He gets all the glory. You see, the glorious gospel that was proclaimed by Paul and that will need to be defended by Paul was first celebrated and made much of. Paul's proclaimed it, and in just a few verses, he is going to fiercely defend it. But you know what he does before that? He celebrates it. He celebrates it. This isn't just some theological argument Paul's about to engage in. He first stands back and he looks at the Savior. And he's amazed and he's moved. And he gives God all the glory. So that leaves us with this question. What do we do with the opening lines of this letter? How how do they speak to us Today, what are we to do with this? We're not the church at Galatia. We may not be experiencing the exact same temptations that they did. So what do we do with this letter? Here's the takeaway. It's going to be up here on the screen. The glorious gospel on display in the letter of Galatians reveals the good news of what God has done. That's our takeaway 
for this morning. The glorious gospel on display in the letter of Galatians reveals the good news of what God has done. Think about what we just read. Stand back. Look at it from 30,000 feet. And think about what every line in those five verses just proclaimed to us. It was God the Father who willed our salvation. It was Jesus Christ who accomplished our salvation. It was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. It was God who rescued us from this present evil age. In other words, all the historical truths about the gospel, all the historical truths about the gospel that make salvation possible must be traced back to God. But that's not all. That's not all. It's not just what God did in the past. He willed it. He accomplished it. But notice this. God is the one who gives people grace and peace once they respond to the gospel message with faith and repentance. And how can people experience grace and peace? He then called men like the Apostle Paul to go and to proclaim the good news. Do you see it? Every bit of these five verses has God's fingerprint on it. He made salvation possible. He accomplished salvation. He applies salvation to our hearts. And how does that happen? He calls men and women to be his messengers. That's why he gets all the glory. This is his doing. See, the gospel is the good news of what God has done. This is the good news of what God has done. So let me make a suggestion. One thing to keep in mind when speaking about the gospel message is we must not confuse the gospel message itself with the call to respond to the message of the gospel. We must not confuse those two. The message of the gospel is about what God has done, not what we are to do. Now, that message must be responded to, but we must not confuse the two. See, don't refer to the gospel in terms of what one must do in order to be saved, like placing their faith in Christ and repenting of sins. You see, faith and Repentance are necessary responses to the gospel message, but they are not the gospel. The gospel is what God has done, period, end of sentence. So we must not think when we're talking to people and they say, tell me the gospel, or I'm going to tell you the gospel. Here's what you must do. You must be saved by putting your faith in Jesus and turning from your sins. That's not the gospel. That's how they have to respond to the gospel. The gospel is God did all this for you. Now, it requires a response. But don't get the response confused with what God has done. This is all his doing. You see, it's imperative that we grasp the significance of this simple truth that the gospel is about what God has done for us. Because if we're not careful, and we get this wrong, even in the slightest bit, we will distort the gospel message. It doesn't take much to start to distort the gospel message. We, we see, here's what we must not do. We must not come to the letter of Galatians with some kind of spirit of judgment and even pride that thinks, well, we would never distort or pervert the gospel. As if these people were just boneheads. Well, we've heard the gospel. They heard it from Paul. Take that in. They just heard it from the Apostle Paul. And it's not long before they're going, well, you know, maybe he's not right. 
goes on. Now, maybe the way we're tempted to distort it may look different, but we're all tempted to distort the gospel message. And these first opening verses remind us we must be clear on this. The gospel is the good news of what God has done. Now, how should we respond to this glorious gospel? I want to mention four things in closing. First of all, receive it. If you're here this morning and you have never received this glorious gift of being forgiven of your sins, been given peace with God, a peace that reigns within, then this morning all you have to do is receive the gift. How do you receive the gift? You put your faith in the one who died to free you, who paid for your sins. He was perfect. He didn't die because he deserved it. He died in your place and in my place. And all you have to do to experience grace and peace is to turn to him and say, I receive this gift. I don't deserve. I could never earn it, but I will receive it freely. Second thing, not only should we respond to this glorious gospel by receiving it, we must proclaim it. I love it that this Sunday fell on the week that we're starting the bridge course. One of the reasons we are passionate about sharing the gospel with the lost is not only so that people can experience the good news, but friends, if we say we love the gospel, don't we want to share it? If we say it's the most glorious truth in all the universe, then why are we so silent? See, if it's a glorious gospel, it not just saves us. It's a glorious gospel we want to save others. And therefore, we proclaim it to others. So how do we respond to this glorious gospel? We receive it, we proclaim it, we protect it. Now, we're not all called to be the Apostle Paul and do the same work that he did. But the gospel is always, always in danger of being distorted. And if we love it and it's a treasure, tell me what treasure in your life you wouldn't defend. And depending on the treasure, you would probably defend it to the death. Is there a greater, more glorious treasure in all of our lives than the gospel? So we must be careful with what we listen to on the radio and on the television and books sold in Christian bookstores. They all use the title of the gospel, but they're not all the same gospel. We say, oh, that's judgmental. We're all, we're all, you know, we're all children of God. Yes, some of us may be, but just because somebody uses the term gospel, we need to be discerning. We're not discerning because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're just, we're angry and we're defensive and we want to be people that point out every error. No, we want to say this, this glorious gospel saves when it's not messed with. So we want it to be proclaimed. We want to see people get saved, but we don't want this gospel to be mixed with health, wealth and money and self-esteem. All this stuff that's being called the gospel, it's not the gospel. We must protect the gospel from any error. Lastly, friends, listen. If 
this glorious gospel is so amazing and so beautiful. Not only should we receive it, proclaim it, and protect it, we must praise God for it. Can we, can we pull our picture back up on the screen? That's how we ought to be in light of the gospel. See, if we love the gospel, we shouldn't just be people who receive it. We shouldn't just be people who proclaim it. We shouldn't just be people who receive it. We must be people who celebrate it. That's why we sing the songs we do on Sunday mornings. We sing the songs intentionally because they are rich with truths that help us praise God for the glorious truths of the gospel. Let me ask you this question in closing. Does the go- is the gospel something that gets you stirred up and fired up and wanting to praise God for? Let me ask it in another way. If you say this gospel is so glorious, but you're unmoved during worship when we're singing about the glories of Calvary, why is that? You need to do some soul searching. I need to do soul searching. If I can stand here and be like, If it's glorious, don't we want to shout it from the rooftops that my sin, not in part but the whole, was given to Christ and he paid for my sin and I am forever, eternally free. Don't we want to make much of that? Don't we want to be the loudest singers? Don't we want to rejoice greatly? You see, if we get the gospel, it it doesn't just make us evangelistic. It doesn't just make us apologetic and defending the gospel. It should make us the loudest, most passionate worshipers because we realize what we deserve and what we've been given. And we're moved. We're undone by the truths of the gospel. So, friends, let us Walk into this letter, knowing God is going to meet us. He's going to show us many things. He's going to convict us. He's going to encourage us. He's going to strengthen us. But we must make sure we have our feet on solid ground as we begin this letter. The gospel is the good news of what God has done. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a glorious truth. Oh, Lord, may we not be unmoved by this truth. Oh, Lord, by the power of the Spirit right now, would you help us so that when the moment we stand up and we sing, we don't just sing words to a song. Lord, our hearts are erupting because we are aware of what you've done for us. Lord, we come this morning aware of what we deserve and we are aware of what through Jesus Christ we've been given and Lord I pray that we would live in the good of that today and throughout this week and it would it would give us joy it would change our perspective we would be living with that attitude we're we're better off than we deserve 
And Lord, may we see the lost around us with new eyes. And Lord, we do ask that this Thursday night and the ones leading after that, that you would save the lost this first course so that they could experience the freedom you've experienced. They can be delivered from this present evil age. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for not treating us as we deserve. Thank you for lavishing your love upon us. Now, may we respond appropriately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.